It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Kirby. And I'm Sarah. Welcome Welcome to to Los Angeles. Angeles. Every week we break down the most important beauty news and launches, interview your favorite beauty experts, influencers, and celebrity guests, and review our favorite beauty products of the moment as your beauty editor BFFs from the beautiful and great city of Los Angeles. Welcome Glamgelinos! We hope you stay a while. (laughs) Cute. That's cute. Hi Kirby. Hi little baby boo-boo. Little baby babies <laughs> you look like a little baby right now <laughs> do i yes thank you i'll take that as a compliment you should my little baby um, my baby is no longer a small baby she's, she's a six month old baby months old our little tiny baby that creme creme is graduating to like a big old creme <laughs> she's the she's the uh giant uh la Mer size now <laughs> She's no longer just like the she was a, she was a sample, but a mere sample, and then a small little pot, and now she's the big, big mama jar. Yeah, she's the expensive one, little Bobby, little Bobby Zozo, love her. Well, it's been a week. It's been quite a week. It's been a very heavy week, um, like Kirby just said, um, and we just wanted to say, um, you know, here at Los Angeles, you guys know, um, we always want to uplift all of our listeners no matter the race um but it's been particularly hard uh for our asian american pacific islander community um over the past month you know there have been a lot of attacks anti-asian attacks the rise in hate crimes against asians have increased over the past year over the past four years and This week, I think, especially has just hit our community really, really hard. And we just want to say that, you know, we are here for all of you. And we hope that, you know, all of you feel seen and heard and supported by us. And that also that you guys are, you know, taking some time to rest, be gentle with yourselves, take moments of self-care. I know I have been. We, you know, want to do everything we can, like I said, to support you guys and to support all of the amazing Asian and Pacific Islander beauty brands that exist that we love. Um, we've had so many of our, you know, favorite founders who are um, Asian Americans on the podcast, and we will continue to do so. Kirby, is there anything you want to add? I am heartbroken because I feel like for the past couple of months, the Asian American, you know, Pacific Islander community especially has been saying, hey, we're, see- we're seeing this uptick in these violent crimes, especially against older Asian Americans. And it took a while. And now Asian women, yeah. they've always been marginalized, obviously. Our, our fight has, and you've, you've all read this a million times over, but has been more invisible than than maybe others and it's just culturally like we have always been taught to sort of you know stay quiet and not speak out about um anything that we have been going through um and that is especially true for asian women and so i think the attacks in atlanta like just really brought to light like how hard it is for these these women who you know they moved here to start better lives they're working tirelessly in these jobs that don't pay them anything. Um, you know, just hoping for like a better life, and it's just it's just so sad. Sorry. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Oh my god, you're gonna make me cry. I think if, if anybody knows Sarah Tan, she's the best person i'm sobbing i'm sobbing i can't help it but you don't have to know somebody 
that is Asian American or Asian or buy from a brand that is founded by AAPI founders to understand how deeply wrong this is. So we are asking our listeners to patronize a AAPI business, buy, go to your favorite restaurant, buy a product. We have a list of them on our Instagram from brands that we personally love. It's not a definitive list. I know we probably left out so many that we love and care about. We need to stand in solidarity, especially my fellow white women and men that listen to this podcast. Like we have to be the best allies that we can be and uplift our AAPI brothers and sisters. So if there's anything we can do, I want it to change the world. We're just one small podcast. But if we can do anything to try to help, I think bringing awareness and highlighting founders like this and brands is super, super important. Absolutely. Just the community that we've built is everyone is just so lovely, so supportive, you know, in the Facebook group, on Instagram, on Twitter. And um, I just... I want all of us to be there for each other. And so like Kirby said, if there's anything that we can do for you guys, we're here for you. You know, we're here. We're listening. Um, we wish we could like give everyone a big hug. I love you. Yeah, I love you. Sorry. I didn't I didn't think I was going to cry. <laughs> I, I definitely do not blame you for having a little tear sesh. Yeah. So even though it has been a heavy week, I think we have an incredible episode that a lot of you have been looking forward to. And our guest just so happens to be an Asian American man, Daniel Kiyoi, who we've mentioned on previous podcasts before. He is a very, very dear friend of Kirby and mine. He used to work at Tarte for years. He was their creative director and he became their creative director at the wee age of 26. He must be he must have been one of like the youngest creative directors of like a major beauty brand. Yep. He is responsible for so much of the brand's growth. Obviously the creative part of the brand like from the packaging to all all of the art, um even down to like the handwritten tartlet on the palette, the name, like that's all Daniel. He was such a big part of the brand. So he went off and started his own brand called Magic Dusk which is a incubator brand. In this episode, he's going to go into more than just the brands that he's created. He's going to go into how he started, what he studied in college, and then he gets into how to create your own beauty brand, which I think is one of the most riveting parts of the conversation. This episode actually was kind of based off of a thread that was started in the Facebook group. I loved this this thread because it started off like, have any of y'all thought about making your own beauty brand? What are, like how? Where do, where do you start? And people were chiming in like, yeah, I think about this all the time. And so Daniel will walk you through that process. He'll talk to you about, um, well, you'll just, you'll hear it. I don't want to walk all the way through it, but you'll hear it. So if you are thinking maybe one day you want to create a beauty brand, this step-by-step and these tips are going to be extremely helpful to uh, to the future of your brand. I'm super, super excited. So here it is. Happy Friday, Glam Gelinos. We have such a fun episode today, such a fun guest, a longtime friend of Kirby and mine. We've traveled to Hawaii with him. He's worked in the industry forever and one of our favorite people in the industry. And he is doing some really, really, really exciting things that we cannot wait to chat with him about today. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Yay. Thank you so much. I feel like I've made it. I've made it in my career because I'm on Los Angeles. It is incredible. You know I love you guys so much, and I am a stan of Los Angeles. You've really been a longtime supporter of us from the get-go. Day one support. We respect that so much. Yes, and I'm so impressed what you guys have done, leaving your jobs, finding incredible guests, just the hustle. I so recognize how difficult that is, and I'm very, very impressed and honored to be here. Well, the honor is all ours. So we start every episode off, as you know, with... What's on your face? 
So Daniel, I know that you have a very strict skincare regimen and you're trying out products all the time, but is there one or two products that you're currently wearing or loving that is on your face that you want to share with us? Okay. Let's take that one or two products and turn it into four because I am a crazy skincare person. So firstly, I want to talk about a cleanser that I've repurchased several times, which as you know, is a huge deal. It is the Dr. Dennis Gross Alpha Beta Pore Perfecting Cleansing Gel. And the reason why I like this is because it's very, very thick. So it doesn't run through your fingers. You're not wasting product. You can swipe it on your face and it stays. And then you can really cleanse and rub it in. It's awesome. And I have super oily skin. Unfortunately, even though when they say poor things, it's marketing, it doesn't matter. It still kind of gets me. And I do truly feel like it's cleansing my pores. So that's product number one. Product number two is a secret product. It's a vitamin C. I hope that someday it will hit the market. And I am always testing products. I mean, sometimes I have to divide my face into half, quarters, one product here, one product there, just testing all the time. The third product is the Is Clinical Youth Eye Complex. And my friend Maddie, shout out to Maddie, sent me this. And it is incredible. I just feel like if you love that super dewy under eye, just hydrated look, this is going to give it to you and it stays dewy. Unfortunately, it is expensive and it's a treat yourself type of product, but I love it. And it blends well with my fourth product, which is the new Auric Glow Lust Luminizer. And I love this because it really does give you radiance. I just tap a little bit on my cheekbone and there's no glitter. It just gives you a glow and it just feels super high end. And every time I wear it, someone always stops and stares and asks me, why is your face so glowy? <laughs> and sometimes I go a little overboard and I've learned to tone it down a little bit, but even on Zoom, if I'm in the right lighting, people will be like, oh, you're wearing something nice on your face. And that's what it is. And as y'all know, I featured Auric a few weeks ago as what is on my face, as like the thing that I'm using under my eye, on my cheekbones, on my high points. And just like Daniel said, it is not glittery. This is adult mature highlighting. This is like what highlighting of the future will look like. And yes, it makes you look super dewy. I personally love it under my eye. But Daniel, you helped create this brand. You helped create Auric. That's the secret here. So I actually do want to ask you a little bit about how you got involved with Samantha, if you don't mind. Samantha is the content creator behind Auric, as I mentioned a few episodes ago. So how did you meet her? And what was it like working with her and building this brand, Auric, together? Great question. I met Samantha while I was working at my previous job at Tarte Cosmetics as their creative director. And we launched a campaign and she was one of the people that we featured. And we just really hit it off. I was the photographer and she was on set. And after that, we went on brand trips together. She always showed up to Tarte events and just continually built the relationship. And as I was leaving Tarte, we DM'd each other. And she had tried to start the brand with multiple different partners, all of whom I think didn't understand the vision or tried to take advantage of her. And we just reconnected. And I really understood her vision from the start that she wanted something different than what was out there from other influencer content creator brands, more luxury, higher end, beautiful packaging. I just could see the vision right away. And I was so, so excited to work with her. So that's how we met and started. I've always admired Samantha, but knowing she has good taste in working with you makes me like her even more. So shout out to Samantha for her impeccable taste. Mwah. Shout out to Sam. Love her. Yes. And I even said, if you guys go back and listen to that episode, I was like, is this going to be some of that typical YouTuber shit? Like, is that the stuff? No, this is not a typical launch that you would expect from, you know, somebody that does, you know, quote unquote, YouTube makeup, right? Like we talk about the heaviness of the bottle. It feels super luxe. The product itself feels super luxe. And it really is so different than every other luminizer that Sarah and I have both tried. We want radiance, guys. We don't want glitter on our face anymore. 
Yeah, we sadly we outgrew that. And if you still love glitter and shimmer on the face, by all means, do you. But for me personally, my 34 year old skin has outgrown that look. So you talked about Sam, you talked about Tarte Cosmetics, which we definitely are going to get into because I think that your career is so fascinating. And I think it's also a part of the beauty industry that a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with. Let's go back to the beginning. As Hilary Duff sings, let's go back, back to the beginning. Okay, um, we don't have to pay her for licensing. There we go. Mary Kay, an institution. Your mom worked for Mary Kay for 30 years and she obtained the infamous pink Cadillac. So can you walk people through what it was like having a mother work for a company like Mary Kay, like what you learned from that experience. And then also some people might be thinking pink Cadillac, like what does that mean? Like what does that symbolize in Mary Kay culture? So tell us everything, Daniel. Okay, yes. My mom has worked for Mary Kay, continues to work for Mary Kay. It's been over 30 years, incredible. She's a director. And to answer your question, it was crazy, but fun growing up with a mom that did sales for Mary Kay. She was always on the phone, always on the go, meeting with people, networking. I mean, at times it was embarrassing because we would be in the grocery store and she would hand out her card or be like, would you please be a model for my before and after for this new contest that we're running with Mary Kay. And I have super vivid memories of her getting all this inventory into our small apartment. And it was at the time when companies still used those annoying styrofoam packing peanuts. And I'll never forget just her always constantly digging through these boxes, peanuts flying everywhere. And young elementary school Daniel being like, this is not efficient. I don't understand. Like, you can't be digging through all these boxes, rushing out the door, trying to get product to customers. And so I would help her organize her product on this shaky, rickety shelf that we had, lining them up by product category. And I think that maybe that experience with her really informed my later years when I just happened to end up at Tarte and working a ton with visual merchandising and building gondolas and in-store experiences. And again, lining up those products only on a shelf that wasn't rickety. That is just like the sweetest story ever. It makes my eyes wet. Makes your eyes wet. Oh my God, I've never heard you say that. That makes me laugh. Just a note on the pink Cadillac, because I know you asked about that too. It is the true symbol of status for Mary Kay. And you have to hit a certain amount of production in order to earn the Cadillac through sales, through recruiting and building out your team. And I remember it always being a huge point of stress for my mom and really understanding at a young age what it means to have to hit sales numbers and the hustle that it takes to do that. And there were times when she would lose pink Cadillac status and it would be really devastating for her because she wasn't able to hit that production. And then times when she would earn it back and it would be this huge celebration and she would take great pride in that milestone. And people knew her because we would drive around town in this pink Cadillac. And when we were young, it was super bright pink, crazy pink. And then as we got older, it became more sophisticated and, and was more like a champagne color. But I think looking back, I was definitely embarrassed to be driving around in a pink car. And now that I'm an entrepreneur and very much in the hustle myself, I truly recognize and appreciate and admire my mom for working so hard and earning that status. And I'm really proud that she has continued on for so long in Mary Kay. Was she like super competitive or was it competitive in Santa Barbara? Like was Cindy across the street for, was also a Mary Kay ambassador. And so, you know, your mom was like hustling to get her customers. Like, how does that work? Well, Sarah, I think this is actually a really good point because we do talk about MLMs on this podcast and Mary Kay, at that time, especially when your mom was just getting started, that was really a means for like a modern housewife to have her own income. It's so different than what it is today. You know, there are so many MLMs available today and we have various opinions on them. But Mary Kay at the time, I was really giving an opportunity for women to be like, okay, I can also bring home the bacon and have something kind of to strive for outside of the family. 
Right. I'm assuming your mom didn't study sales and marketing or, you know, so she was, you know, teaching herself and learning these tricks. Can you tell us what that was like for her? She actually was a special ed teacher and had her degree in education and was really not confident. And she talks about this all the time, that what changed her life is meeting this woman named Mary Lou, what would become her best friend and boss. And Mary Lou brought her into Mary Kay and taught her how to interact with people and really engage with them in selling product. And I think it boosted my mom's confidence. She was a single mom. My parents split up when we were super, super young. And so I think she did need that independence, that boost of confidence, those goals to strive for. And in terms of the competition, at the time, I really remember Mary Kay setting up boundaries. If you as a customer had already talked to a different Mary Kay consultant, then the rule was you had to stick with that consultant unless that consultant gave permission for you to go elsewhere. And my mom was very, very respectful of those boundaries. Of course, it's a bummer if she meets someone that is incredible. My mom would be bummed and say, I wish that I could work with this person, but I can't because she belongs to another consultant. So I think that there were those boundaries that really helped the competition. I think for her, it was more about self-competition. Like I was saying, the disappointment that would happen if she didn't reach a certain level of production or the right recruiting or the right sales. And that I recognize in myself a lot as well. Both my parents are very self-motivated and create a lot of competition within themselves. I think we're going to have to have her on the podcast. We'll talk to her people. Yes, I'm terrified at that, but she would be great. So Daniel, you ended up getting a double degree in paint and graphic design. It makes sense for what you're doing now, but maybe at the time it didn't make sense for getting into the beauty industry. How did getting your degree in those areas lead you to working in the beauty industry? Yeah, when I went to college, I had my mindset on being a fine art painter, and that was going to be my job. I was going to be a working artist and living the creative life. And before I went to school, my dad asked me if I wanted a PC or a Mac. And I said, definitely a PC because I don't believe in Macs. I don't believe in digital art or graphic design. And when I got to college, I met certain people that really changed my path. One of them being a student that convinced me to join this graphic design internship. And one of them being the professor that ran this graphic design internship. And he taught me every single thing I needed to know, introduced me to Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator. And those were the building blocks for what would become a graphic design career, merging into an art director, merging into a creative director, but I needed those foundations as a graphic designer in order to get where I am today. And I was resistant. I mean, I really wanted to be that painter. And I think maybe down the road when I retire, I'll become what I had always wanted to be. I'll be a painter full time. So through a temp agency, you got placed at Smashbox Cosmetics. What happens there? What were you doing there? And how did that help you decide, okay, maybe this beauty thing is for me? I couldn't get a job after college. I had applied everywhere and ended up eventually applying to a job at a temp agency to be working in their office. And I thought, if I can't find a job as a designer, I'm going to place designers because I have enough of an eye to figure out if someone's talented. And when I showed up to my interview, they mixed me up with a different candidate. And I ended up interviewing to be a designer. And I don't know what angel was watching over me, but it was just an incredible life-changing interview, 10 minutes long with this crazy woman. I had no idea if she liked my work. And a month later, I was placed at Smashbox, working in their digital department on their website, building homepages and emails, et cetera. And it was truly a temp job. So I would be there for a couple of days. Then I wouldn't hear from them for a couple of weeks or even a month. They would call me back when they had more budget. I would go in. I would do all of this work, just a ton of work in small amounts of time and then leave and come back. And eventually they ran out of budget in the digital department. And my boss had liked the work that I did. So he referred me over to the packaging department where the creative director then interviewed me to work in packaging and also work in visual merchandising. And then you were at Tarte for nine years. That's how Sarah and I know you. What was your role there? And what are some of your proudest moments and launches 
Oh man, this could be a whole episode on its own, just the journey of Tarte, because I worked there for eight or nine years. I can't even remember. I started as a graphic designer, didn't last long as just a graphic designer because they were cycling through creative directors. And eventually the CEO, Maureen Kelly, she brought me into her office and said, you need to be the creative director. And I told her, no, I was like, no, I cannot. I'm still young. I want to learn from a quote, real creative director. I am not qualified to do this job. And she basically threatened to fire me. (laughs) And I took it really seriously. But looking back, I was like, oh gosh, she wouldn't have fired me. But what a great tactic, just making me feel like I was going to lose the job. So I took the creative director position and really worked with her and the rest of the team to create a new tart. We redid their website. We redid their packaging, their visual merchandising. We really brought out their high performance natural story. And tart was incredible because they were one of the first to work with influencers and YouTubers. And I remember we had this awesome videographer and she brought Graveyard Girl to us and said, this this influencer on YouTube is amazing. We need to collaborate with her. And she was one of the first that we worked with. And influencers really, really changed the trajectory of Tarte as a company. Because as we worked with YouTubers even more, and then Instagram popped up and were constantly reaching out. I feel like Tarte was one of the early adapters of those content creators. And it really ended up exploding the business, the brand awareness, the reviews that people were creating. All of that is so necessary for just the overall growth of the company. And because the product was good, people really latched on and trusted these influencers talking about Tarte. And then it it just exploded from there. Fast forward to brand trips. Oh my gosh, brand trips. It's where I met you guys. And I know brand trips get a lot of hate, but it is a lot of work. Let me tell you, to plan and coordinate everything from flights to getting the product to these insane locations. I can't even tell you how crazy it is to deal with customs and all of that stuff and the gifting and the messaging and just overall the fun. Brand trips are so fun. And a lot of times there's competition with beauty companies and all of that. But when you're on a trip, it all kind of melts away and you're just having a good time. You're meeting people in the industry. You're talking about trends. You're talking about what products you're loving, what you're not loving. And I love brand trips. And you're really getting to know these people beyond their YouTube channel or their editorial jobs. This is where like we became friends, forming real friendships. Same with Kirby and me, you know? Like that's why I think a huge part why Los Angeles exists today is because we got to spend so much time with each other on these extravagant press trips. Oh yeah, people don't realize the effort that goes into when I walk into my hotel room and there's just product laid out that wasn't there three hours ago. I mean, they're having to store that product somewhere. They're doing it for everybody on the trip. Custom faces on pillows, your names on robes. And you know a good brand trip from a bad brand trip, trust me. I haven't even gone on brand trips before because I'm like, I know this is gonna be a proper mess. I'm gonna stay at home. Tart, you guys knew what you were doing. Every turn you looked, there was a new experience. I got to bring my mom on one of the trips and to this day she still talks about it. She's like, when am I going on another trip? tart i'm like never again probably mom sorry so the first trip i ever went on was tart cosmetics in february of 2016. i think this may have been maybe the first or second big brand trip that tart had ever put on that brand trip really opened my eyes to influencer culture because previously to that i had only heard about youtubers and influencers i'd never had really any facetime with them outside of like candy johnson and then some people that would come into the Pop Sugar offices. And on that trip, I met Manny, MUA, Nicole Concilio, who I am still very close with, Patrick Starr, I think Jade Chapman, JD Wadey 180 was on that trip, Desi Perkins, Shayla. And this was when they all agreed to like be together on a trip. Not saying there's any bad blood by anybody I mentioned. Now it's like, okay, well, what other influencers are going on these trips?
Daniel, in terms of your job at Tarte, you were creative director. So what does that entail? What what exactly were you doing for the brand that maybe a consumer would see on a shelf or maybe not see on a shelf? I oversaw all areas of creative. So it's normally split into three sections in a business, packaging, digital, and in-store. And I had a team across all of those different pillars. So whether it be making sure that the new collection was incredibly designed or an in-store gondola update and or an in-store event. Also with those trips that we were just talking about, being in charge of all those little graphics and working with designers to create those spaces, those custom name pillows, et cetera. Anything that was visual ran through my department and working super, super closely with the CMO, Candace and the CEO, Maureen, they were very, very involved. And it truly was a team effort to create experiences both on a trip and just for a regular consumer going into store or on the website or on Instagram. So then do you have like a favorite line or a favorite product that you have created packaging wise or like looks wise or is there an initiative or something that you did with Tarte that you're like, this is my shining moment? That is such a tough question. I'm really proud of the OG Tartlet palette, which was all matte. And I am proud of it because on the top of the palette is my handwriting that was then digitally converted to be able to be used on packaging. And it was the start of my handwriting being on many of the products across Tarte. So all of the Tartlet franchise, the Tartist franchise, I mean, so many of them, I would be sitting in my office with black ink and a paintbrush, just painting over and over and over again. That was kind of the painter in me, the artist in me. And I liked that I was able to infuse it and was so so fortunate that the marketing team and that the CEO really, you know, wanted to use those designs. I hoard the Tartlet palettes, by the way. I have some that are so old, but I will not get rid of them. And now I will never get rid of them because it means so much that you're on there. So that is your handwriting. That little semi-cursive stroke that's your handwriting? Yes. Oh my God, Daniel, why is that not the first thing you tell people? That's incredible. I'm absolutely shooketh to my core that that's your handwriting. I just am staring at it right now going, oh my God, Daniel. It goes to show like how much Daniel accomplished at Tarte, that that is just another thing that he did there that he's proud of. That for me would be a headline. Oh, totally, totally. When did you leave Tarte? I left Tarte in, officially in September of 2019. Okay, you weren't on the Disney trip for the Maneater Mascara, were you? No, I was not on the Disney trip, but I might have still been working at Tarte at the time. I just had probably not gone on that particular trip. Maneater is also my handwriting, but Big Ego is not my handwriting because at that time I just got too busy. I couldn't be sitting in my office creating these handwritten things. So they had to find a font that looked similar to my handwriting. And that's a big egoist, but Maneater was one of those scanned handwriting. Oh my God, that is crazy. That is, I love it. I love this story. What a great little tidbit. Thanks for sharing that. So we had the opportunity to meet you through Tarte. You did so much at Tarte, but you decided it was time to go on your own and do your own thing. Daniel, I remember you moved to LA. We had lunch. Was this like two years ago? Yeah, maybe even three years ago. Three years ago. Oh my God. Three years ago. And you're like, I'm working on something. And you showed me your deck and I was like, sign me the hell up. What are you doing? This is incredible. And this was still just the early stages, but you like knew what you were doing. So fast forward to now, you officially launched Magic Dusk. Can you tell us what Magic Dusk is all about? What you've been cooking up these past few years? Yes. And this is what I'm so excited to talk to you guys about today. Clearly, I'm very passionate about it. Magic Dusk is a two-part business. We have a brand incubator that creates new indie beauty companies. And we also have an online retail marketplace that sells the brands that we work on and eventually will sell outside brands in the future. And currently on the incubator side, we work with mostly OG influencers to transform their digital identities into real-life brands. And we do it all. I mean, from logo design to product development to packaging engineering, website creation, warehouse fulfillment, 
social, retail partnerships, you name it, we do it. And we really are the only place that you would need to go if you wanted to start a brand or a product line. Okay, so let's dive a little bit deeper into that. For our listeners who don't know, and for me, (laughs) and maybe Kirby too a little bit, what goes into creating a product? Can you walk us through the process from start to finish? Obviously, I know it's probably different for hair care to skin care to making like a gadget for your kitchen or whatever. But like what you did with Auric, can you walk us through that process? And Daniel, I think that the more explanation you can give here, the better because recently in the Facebook group, there is a thread of women in particular saying, have you guys ever considered creating a beauty brand? And if so, where do you start? This could be an entire series. We could do a five-part series on how to create a brand and how to create a product line, but I do think that they're different. I mean, obviously they're related, but I'll talk more on the product development side because it seems like that's kind of what you guys want is the creation of a product, whereas creating a brand is a whole nother ball game, and that's a lot of work on its own. But our process is, and I have an incredible head of product development, Mel, she's incredible. I wish that she was here giving this answer because she would do such a better job than I am, but I'll try to do my best here. We like to start with just nailing down exactly what type of product you want to create. And then once you decide that, doing all the competitive analysis on other products out there like that, net weight, price, packaging, messaging, etc. So say you guys wanted to start a moisturizer and you said, my dream has always been to create an ultra hydrating moisturizer that is medium to heavy body. Like that's what I want. So we would go out there and like I said, look at all the other things on the market. And then we would create a product brief called a PDR. And in the product brief, all labs require this. It is as much detail as you could possibly give a lab from basics, like what your target price is for the formula, all the way to very, very detailed, what your no-no list is, what your views are on fragrance, what ingredients you would want to put in. Just as important as keeping ingredients out is obviously putting in raw materials. Do you want something that is very, very active and efficacious? Do you want to source something from a different country so you can have the story of we found this raw material in South America and have brought it in to be included in this product? All of those details need to go into a PDR. So for someone that's new and creating a product, it's difficult if you haven't gone through that and don't have the proper forms. A lot of times, if you go to a lab and know that you need a PDR, you can ask them, do you have an example of PDRs that you like to work with? And they will send it to you and you do your due diligence and you fill them out and then you create a timeline for when you need this product to hit the market. And after you've, in, after you've submitted the PDR and the timeline, then they start submitting formulas to you and you can start testing out textures and editing. And this can go on for a really, really long time because if you're not hitting the right texture, it doesn't feel right. You have to edit a million times. And of course, you need time in between to test the formula. You can't just test it once and then say, okay, approved. I mean, you could, but then it wouldn't be a good product. So really in between each submission, you want a couple of weeks to so that you're informed on what it's actually doing to your skin. And you have a lot of calls, a lot of project management, a lot of emails back and forth on editing and subtract this. Sometimes you have to scrap everything and start over. Once you land on a formula that you really, really like, you then go into testing phase. And this is so, so, so important because all of these products, specifically a moisturizer, is going to go on someone's skin, on someone's face. And testing is split up into a couple different areas. There is your baseline testing for the formula is stability. And the industry standard is leaving it in a heater for three months, which simulates product aging. And they can simulate over time what is going to happen to the formula. So that's stability testing. Simultaneously, you need to have already figured out what your packaging is, whether it's plastic or glass or aluminum, whatever it might be. And you have to run compatibility testing with the formula in the packaging. And what that is showing is is this formula going to react to the packaging? Are there going to be any strange chemical? reactions that you do not want. And that's 
the very basic compatibility testing, but it also becomes very sophisticated. Say you have a, a mist or a pump. You have to make sure that the product is not breaking down the engine of the mist or the engine of the pump, and that over time, it's not going to fail. And a big reason why product development takes so long is because those tests, if you're doing it properly, do take time to make sure that the packaging doesn't fail, that the formula doesn't fail. And once all of those things are done, you can then move into other testing, like micro-testing, which is making sure that there's no mold or microorganisms growing within a product. And then you can go into consumer panel testing. You can go into clinicals where they do true, true scientific tests on people's skin and whether it's changing or not. And there's just so many different tests that you can do for a product once you've created it. And often along that journey, you find that something goes wrong. I mean, the amount of things that go wrong, it truly is a miracle to get a product on the market because the formula could be unstable. The packaging could break. There's just a lot of things that people could be getting reactions to it. There's a lot of things that go wrong. And so patience is so important when you're creating a product because rushing to market oftentimes will give you that initial bump of sales. And then you'll have all these problems and it will be way more expensive to fix those problems and recover your reputation for putting out a product on the market that is a bad product. And then once you have finalized the formula and the packaging, then you get to do the fun part. Then you get to do the secondary packaging and you get to do the, the photo shoot and all of that stuff. But I'd say within that, there's so many other details, but that's the overarching path to creating a product. Okay, that was incredibly informative. I don't know a lot of that stuff. I've never created a product or a brand. So that's all news to me. I have many questions, many. First and foremost, I think the thing on everybody's mind, how much does this shit cost, Daniel? Because you don't have to give us like verbatim numbers. You don't have to give us an example of a brand and what they paid. But when I hear that you have to start over from scratch, that's not just like a freebie. Those all cost money. So if somebody really is serious about creating a brand, can you give some details on the monetary costs associated with doing that? Yes, I can give you some details. And there's a lot that goes into this as well. But it depends on the lab that you're working with. Some of them require a deposit that will be refunded if you eventually place an order with them. And that protects them, obviously, if you're being fickle and you don't actually end up creating the product. Some of them, depending on your relationship, actually will do the whole process for free, all of those submissions out of good faith, because you have either worked with them in the past or you're recommended to them by someone that they really trust. And that is almost like an investor having a good intuition about an entrepreneur. Sometimes you just have to take a risk and labs will do that. They'll take a risk if they really believe in you and offer you all of the development for free. That is not always the case though. So you can have a cost there anywhere between $2,500, $5,000, $6,000 and more if you start getting really, really crazy. But most of our partners our lab partners do development for free for us. So our clients really, really benefit from that. And then the cost for a product is not just in the formula because you have to pay for raw materials similar to baking. You have to buy the flour, you have to buy the baking soda, the sugar, et cetera. You're doing all of that for products. And so there's the cost of the actual materials. There's the cost of the time that it takes the chemist to create it. And then there's the cost once the formula is done to fill and assemble your packaging. So once it's on the production line, it costs time and energy to fill those products. And of course, then you have packaging and packaging drives a lot of the cost. I mean, you could have super, super custom, very, very luxe materials, or you can go with really, really cheap plastics. And just going back really quickly to the formula and the baking analogy, you can go to the supermarket and get organic flours, organic sugars that are going to be more expensive, or you can get very, very cheap 
raw materials to make your baked good. You're still going to get a cookie. It might not just be the quality ingredients that you want. So it's the same thing for cosmetics. You can really spend a lot on the formula if you want to. A lot of people don't, but you can. And so there's a wide range in how much a formula could cost. And then there's a lot of hidden costs within a product because if you're making custom packaging, say you're creating a cap in China, you're sourcing a pump from Europe, you're creating glass in Italy, all of that has to be shipped to your laboratory. And that freight cost is expensive. And it is all part of the development fee. And so I think that a lot of customers, they're always complaining, this is so expensive, blah, blah. And yes, the margins of beauty are good. There's good markups for companies, but they have to because of all of the other costs that go into it. It's not just about the formula. And that's the biggest misconception from the customer side is like, oh, the liquid inside, the moisturizer inside can't cost that much. Like, why am I paying so much? They're not thinking about all the other things. And there's no way that they possibly could think about all that stuff because they've never created a product before. And so as people get more educated and as there's more transparency from brands on how much it costs to do everything. I think that customers are becoming more aware and they also understand that sometimes a higher priced product really does mean better quality. All right, Daniel, when it comes to shelf life, you're talking about, you know, putting the product in the heater and seeing how it reacts that's not shelf life, but it's like the little canister that opens on the packaging and it says like 12 months or four months. If you put a product, let's say a moisturizer in the heater and after a certain amount of time, it looks like it's starting to disintegrate or decompose or there's mold and stuff growing on it. Are you like, okay, we have to start from scratch because this shouldn't be happening. Or is it like we have to put that there's only once you open the product, you only get three months with it or you only get six months with it? Well, people that are doing it right will adjust the formula because it's primarily separation within stability or weird smells or whatever it might be. If that's happening while you're doing stability testing, you should reformulate, revise, and then start stability testing all over. And again, that's a huge bummer because you've already maybe spent a couple months in this heater and you've lost that time. But you do check-ins. You do like a couple week check-in, month check-in. In terms of the overall shelf life, that little thing you were talking about is called the PAO and it's the point after opening. And that is recommended by the lab and by regulatory people that work within the lab. And it's just recommended. So say you were to create a product and then it's sitting on a shelf, the PAO says six months. That product on the shelf in the warehouse hasn't been opened yet. It hasn't been exposed to air. And so it could have a longer shelf life, you just have to test everything. Say it's been there a year, you need to test it to make sure it's still fine. And you can sell it to customers. And then once a customer opens it, then it kind of starts that PAO timeline. The best companies are constantly evaluating their product and testing it to make sure that it's safe for their customers. Okay. And then my last question is on testing. You talked about clinical trials. You talked about like a panel test. I think people are generally confused. Like Sarah and I always talk about clinical testing and how important that is, especially for ingredients where there's specific claims being made in terms of transformation for your skin. If somebody is looking at maybe a skincare product, I guess, for example, or even a makeup product, um, you know, if you see it's like 98% of women said their lashes were 10 times longer Oh my God, Kirby, I was thinking of a specific mascara brand and I was reading exactly that on, on the actual package. It's always mascaras, oh, but that I know one in particular. I know the same brand. I know what you're saying. We're, we're thinking of the exact same thing. When people say 98% of women, couldn't that just be women in their office that are employees trying the product? It doesn't have to be a separate third-party situation where people that are not aware of what the brand is are using it. Because if it were that case, it would say that on the packaging. Again, I wish that Mel was here to answer this question because she would do it more eloquently than I. But there is a difference between consumer testing, consumer panels, and clinical testing. And talking about consumer panel, that's where you get the 98% of women, et cetera. And you are absolutely correct. Shady brands will take 10 to 20 women in their office, conduct a test, and then create percentages based on that. That is not okay. It is not what you're supposed to be doing. 
you should really be using a third-party testing facility, which is very legitimate. They find subjects that are extremely neutral. They give you product in unmarked packaging, so you have no idea what the brand is. And they have a ton of questions that they're supposed to answer. And that's where you get true consumer results. So not all consumer results, like the 98%, et cetera, is fake, but some of it is. And it's really, really hard to tell unless you're within the brand. And then clinical testing is like the next level and it's much more expensive. That's when you can talk about what it's actually doing to the form, the structure of your skin. And if things are going deep into the layers of your skin and you can talk about scientifically how it is affecting cells, et cetera, you can't use language like this is affecting your cell unless you have done clinical testing. And again, there are tons of brands that say whatever they want to, but it technically is not legal or according to the FDA, what you should be doing. But those tests are expensive. Consumer panels, expensive. Clinical testing is even more expensive. And oftentimes brands won't do it and then hope that they don't get caught. So for consumer testing, you said that it's really hard to decipher just from looking on a package, whether or not they did it the right way through a third party. And for clinical testing, is there anything that we should be on the lookout for? Like help our listeners figure out they did a clinical test versus just them saying that they did, that this does something. I think that the first step would be to ask the brand themselves and see what their answer would be, whether that be through a customer service email or uh, via social and try to do some research. A lot of brands that are shady probably won't give you the right information, but maybe based on their answer, you can kind of tell. Oftentimes it's smaller brands that kind of cut corners within testing because it is so expensive. It would be very rare for you to find a, a very large corporate company that is conducting those tests without them being legitimate. Cool, all right, those were all my questions. If y'all have more questions, please, send us an email or message Daniel on Instagram or go to our Facebook group and add it to the thread there. And we'll try to get Daniel in the Facebook group so he can answer questions in real time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I have so many other things to say about like brand building and the future of influence. There's just so much to go over. Obviously, Daniel, this is like a very unique and also heartbreaking time to be an Asian American. You are a Japanese American, so you understand, you know, all of the sadness that's happening, all of this anti-Asian attacks, like it's affecting you as well. But it's also as devastating as it is, it's also putting a spotlight on us for the first time, which is really weird for us. And it's giving us the opportunity to amplify our voices and our experiences. And so I think we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about your experience working in the beauty industry as an Asian American man. Looking back at, you know, however many years you've been working, what was your experience like? Did you experience a lot of racism and sexism? You know, like maybe you didn't think that you were at the time, but now reflecting on it, you're like, oh, yeah, wow, that was actually a really racist incident that happened. Oh, for sure. I've definitely experienced a lot of not overt racism, but definitely a lot of microaggressions or whatever it might be. And I can think of a lot of examples, but here are just a few that are popping up into my head. The first is talking about eye shape when we're talking about eyeshadow or mascara and just the language that people would use in meetings, especially when I was first starting in the beauty industry almost 15 years ago. The way that people talked about Asian eyes and Asian lashes and Asian hair, it just was looking back, not really okay. And it's so sad that the standard of beauty was specifically in eyes all about the double eyelid and having more lid space and that a monolid look was less than or not as beautiful and not shown. And I would be on photo shoots where it'd be like, oh, like this Asian model doesn't have any lid space. Like we can't shoot the shadow on her. Instead of hiring someone that understood how to put eyeshadow on someone that doesn't have a double eyelid. So that's one thing. When I was first interviewing at a job, the creative director, and this was a long, long time ago, I won't mention the company, in the interview, he looked at me and said, I only normally hire 
Asian women. And he went on to give like this long explanation on why he would only hire an Asian woman. And essentially at the end of his long statement, he said, well, you're 50% of what I normally hire. You're Asian. So I'll give you a chance. And that is completely unacceptable. I was super young. I didn't know how to react. Of course, I needed to find a job. And I, since then, of course, have a lot more experience and a lot more competent and would definitely have addressed it and said that that type of language is not okay. And that type of stereotyping is not okay. I do think that Asians do need to speak up for themselves and they do need to be proud of their heritage. A lot of Asian Americans have been in the U.S., for a really long time. They're not just first generation or second generation. They truly have been a part of the American culture. And on the positive side, it's really, really nice to see people supporting Asian Americans. And really the posts and just the outpouring of support is so, so important for any minority. And Sarah, you and I just happen to be in this minority now that's being highlighted. And it, it is important. And I think it's our job in the beauty industry to constantly be examining how we talk about beauty and what the definition of beauty is, that it should be diverse across race and sex and ability. Obviously, now even disabilities are being highlighted within the beauty industry. And I think that all of that is so important because we are stronger together. And we really do need each other in the beauty community to give that diversity so that we're reaching every single customer and client. You can't reach those people if you don't have those people working in the industry. And we hear it all of the time. You know, there has to be women that are in the C-suite. There have to be Black people. There have to be Asians. There have to be South Asians, you know, whatever it might be, those people have to be in those companies in order to give the proper perspective to reach those customers. Mic drop. I was going to be my next question, but you answered it. So thank you for sharing that with us. All right. This is our rapid fire moment. So think the first thing that comes into your head, that's your answer. Okay. First question is what skincare ingredient or ingredients? are you seeing more of behind the scenes when it comes to formulating? These have been around for forever, but there are new antioxidants that are coming into play. Vitamin C is the OG antioxidant, obviously, and everyone loves it. But antioxidants have such incredible properties for your skin, and there are some new ones that are in development. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of antioxidants. And then ceramides. I know that people have talked about ceramides a ton as well, but they're making a comeback. And I'm sure other people who have come on the pod have talked about ceramides. And so those would be my two ingredients that I think we're going to be seeing, again, a lot more of. I know that you're friends with so many, and so this might be hard for you to answer, but who is your current favorite beauty influencer? Or who's doing a really great job right now? Like really fun, interesting, innovative things. Oh gosh, you can't ask me that because I do have so many and so many are my friends and clients. Okay, don't pick a friend then and don't pick a client. Pick just one that you don't know, you don't have a personal relationship with. I will talk about someone who's not a friend and not a client and is actually not a real person. I don't know if you guys know this or if your listeners are aware of this, but over the past couple of years that there has been a rise in CGI influencers, Michaela being one of them. So I think right now I'm finding that super fascinating. And Shudu, who is created by the same company as Michaela, she's dubbed as the world's first digital supermodel. I'm so fascinated by. And I think that these CGI influencers are doing incredible things. I also feel so weird about it. I don't know if I like it at all. But in terms of new influencers or people that I'm following closely outside of my friends in the OG influencer community, those are definitely people that I'm watching and enjoying. I mean, this computer-generated artwork is so, so incredible, and it's only getting better. So it, it's going to be really interesting to keep watching. Okay, the first step to building your own brand is? Identifying your own personal taste and what you like, because it doesn't make sense to try to copy someone else. Figure out what you like. My go-to is always creating a mood board, a ton of mood boards, and seeing what you're drawn to as you as a person, because all the successful brands were created by people with a unique perspective. If you could create any product in the world, it would be dot, dot, dot. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
I wish that there was a product that could accelerate your hair growth overnight so that you could always experiment with your hair. Literally as if you had grown a wig overnight and then you could cut it. And then if you didn't like it, the next day it would grow back. That would be my imaginary thing. And you could just really play around with your overall look and feel. Is there a person or a brand you'd love to work with in the future? So many. There are so many people and so many brands. The number one on my list is Los Angeles, of course. I want to work with you guys. Ah! Oh my God, are we ready to do that? I, I am scared. I'm scared. Uh, okay, last question. You've heard us ask this to our previous guests. Because we are Los Angeles, you are a famous actor. You packed up your bags, moved to LA to become famous. Who is your dream co-star in a movie? Could be any kind of movie. This is the easiest one you've asked me so far. Stanley Tucci. Oh, yes. We stand Stanley. Oh, yeah. And our movie would be obviously... DWP, Devil Wears Prada adjacent. It would have to do with beauty. Maybe him and I are like enemies and then have to become friends to overcome a different enemy. There has to be like insane makeup looks, high fashion. We're talking in some like New York City or maybe even in the future. I mean, can you picture it? Yes. You need to work with Stanley on like his own martini cocktail kit or something. Oh. His quarantine situation was just amazing. All of those, the hype that he got around the drinks. Yeah, I'm in. Stanley, let's make a movie. Let's make a brand. Whatever you want to do, we're in. Awesome. Daniel, thank you so much for spending time with us today on Gloss Angeles. Where can everybody find you? Everyone can find me on Instagram at magic.dusk. And my own personal Instagram, this one's hard, is Copacetic Wanderer. You guys know it's a weird name. I love it. We'll have it linked so people can easily find you. Again, thank you so much for coming on today, Daniel. I, I loved this episode. It was so incredibly informative. I learned something new myself. Y'all, if you love this episode, please let us know. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Los Angeles Pod. Join our Facebook group with all the little Glamgelinos running amok, asking all the beauty questions. Just search Glamgelino Los Angeles on Facebook and you'll find us there. And then, of course, all of our episodes are available on our website, glossangelespod.com. Give us a five-star review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. And we'll talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 